Welcome to the Full Circle Podcast, Finding Your Way at Home. I'm your host, Gillian McMichael, and I am so excited today because I'm in conversation with Mina Fombo. Now, Mina is a founder of an amazing organization that helps young black women find their voice and their authentic self. Alongside that, she's a filmmaker and she's also a facilitator and coach. So I hope you enjoy this conversation because we're talking about all things life, we are looking at transformation and the key lessons that she's learned on her journey so far. So sit back, get comfortable and enjoy the conversation. All right, so welcome to Full Circle, Finding Your Way Home. And my guest today is Mina Fombo. So welcome, Mina. How are you feeling about our conversation today? I'm excited. It's good to be here. And yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad you're here. And we have met a long, long time ago. You were embarking on a maybe a change in your career. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing all about your journey since then, because I know it's going to be really exciting for our listeners to hear all that. But let me just introduce you first of all. So Mina is a fat, she's the founder, filmmaker and a facilitator. So I'm going to hand the reins over to you, Mina. So if you can do a bit more of a deeper introduction to who you are and what you do. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I guess I'd say I find her. So I have three companies. Um, I have Black Girl Convention, which specializes in running sort of large scale events in the Southwest for black women and girls. We've been running since 2016. So we do retreats training, learning, development, leadership, tech, digital media, and everything else in between. Um, I also have Blackwave Productions, which is a TV production company. Mm-hmm. So I think when we launched back in 2019, we were one of the only Black-owned TV production companies that were focused on broadcast, um, trying to still do, go down that road. Um, that's with my business partner, Michael Jenkins. And then also um, we have a project called Beyond We, which is really focused on trying to buy a, a large-scale venue boat to have in the centre of Bristol, and support the work of just black artists and creatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside of all of that, I'm a speaker and facilitator. So I do a lot of coaching, training, leadership development, speaking, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get more into it as we, as we <laughs> exactly. conversate. My- but it's a mouthful. So finder, <laughs> filmmaker, and facilitator <laughs> is quite nice and tidy. <laughs> but wow, how many hours do you have in your day to get all that done? <laughs> Amazing. So why don't we start rewinding a little bit because you have been on quite a transformational journey yourself and you know this podcast is all about understanding people's journeys, where they've been, what they've been doing, how you've overcome obstacles and all of those things. So yeah, just take me back a little bit. So I can't remember when we met. Was it 2005, 2006, something like that? It wasn't that early. Was it not? No, no. no. You know how COVID just draws everyone's yes, memories. Exactly, it, wasn't that, yeah. it was around 2000. And 11, 2012, about 10 years ago yeah. we met. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at a really sort of key crossroads. I was in a job at the time that I wasn't enjoying. Um, and I kind of, I knew I wanted to get out, but I'd been applying for a few roles. I wasn't really getting very far. Um, I'd been introduced to coaching around sort of 2006, 2007. And I'd had like, an, you know, I'd, I'd really like embraced grow and coaching and so on. But I knew that I needed more to kind of pursue more coaching. And um, I think when I came, I'm not sure even how I came across Full Circle Global. I don't know how it popped, of all the courses that are out there and training programs, that one kind of obviously came to me, I guess. And um, I can remember, yeah, I was, I, was, I was exploring, looking into it. And at that time I'd never invested that much financially into myself. I'd been to university, but it's like a grants and loans. So it doesn't feel the same. 
I remember I was flat broke, had no cash, really unhappy in my role, but had this desire that I knew I needed some kind of qualification. Mm -hmm. I knew there was more to learn, didn't know what exactly, and I knew I wanted to disinvest in myself. So the powers that be brought us together. And um, I can remember you invited me for a coffee. I did. Um, you were in London, you said to come that for a coffee, right. yeah. let's have a chat. Mm -hmm. And um, we met, and I can remember like trekking across London after work. Yeah, you paid for the coffee. And I, and I was just like, great, because I'm broke. Like, <laughs> and that kind of sold it. But I think in that conversation, I think as coaches, we know that I think one of the most powerful things when you're talking to potential clients or just individuals is not to sell. It's more about just having a, a, essentially a coaching-led conversation. And even in that, those few minutes, you get those initial insights. And I remember leaving just feeling lifted mm -hmm. from that conversation. Um, and I was still like, how am I going to get the cash? But I was a bit like, it's fine, I can, I'll make this work. And I remember I negotiated with my employer. They were going to pay half. I think I took out a loan to pay the other half. I had a good idea. I was like, can I afford to pay this back? I don't know, but let me just do it because I knew I needed to do it. Mm -hmm. I took in a week of annual leave from my day job because um, I wasn't, wasn't going to ask for leave because mm -hmm. I didn't go with my, my manager at the time. So I just took a week of annual leave. I was like, I'm going on holiday. And I went and did five days of um, coaching training, did transform with, um, with Rushi, yeah. mm -hmm. which, and it was amazing. And I think those five days, you know, the model that we took, went through is transform and they were transformational for me to the extent that even to this day on my email signature that goes out to everybody, I still have that same sort of overarching transformational goal Amazing. as part of my e-signature that, that happened in those five days. That's phenomenal. So that then, I suppose, took you then into the next phase of your journey because now obviously you are coaching, you do facilitation. So how did you then move into the things that you do now? What kind of prompted all of that for you? I don't know how you best describe it. I think it's, it's just life. <laughs> Maybe the best way to describe it is just the journey of life. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, at, at its core, my work has always been in, involved with in, in working with people mm -hmm. and supporting the development of people. So before I came into coaching, I was in uh, youth work. Before youth work, I originally uh, worked, wanted to be a filmmaker. And that was about telling people stories, telling stories about, you know, black people um, in the early noughties. And, you know, we didn't have that much content pre sort of internet, pre sort of YouTube and pre sort of Facebook days. You know, I really wanted more representation. So it's always about <clears throat> telling people stories, telling my story. Um, so youth work led into volunteer management, volunteer management led into leadership. That's when I got introduced to coaching. Then I went on and got sort of more coaching certifications. Um, and then the journey continued through, that was kind of the path that it went through. Um, and then bringing me up to the present day, it's just a progression of interests, I guess. Mm -hmm. So um, I think when I was working back in Bristol, so I'd moved back to Bristol and I can remember going having lived in London for seven and a half years, moving back home to the southwest of Bristol is a very big sort of culture shock. Yeah. I thought that times would have moved on and changed in terms of black-led spaces, black ownership. I remember leaving Bristol when there seemed to be quite a lot of prominent spaces that were black-led. And I went back to Bristol and, and people were calling me like, basically like racist names in the street. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd gone through a time where it was unacceptable to sort of say racist things to people. Mm -hmm. And moving back to sort of a Brexit sort of time, a Brexit sort of Bristol and Brexit sort of country, it almost, and social media has like blown up now in this time. It was very much, people were back to set, shouting at you on the street. And I remember just being like, what happened? Like what happened to the city? And where are all these black owned spaces? And where are all the black events? And you know, why don't we own more and have more? So I remember that first year I navigated the city quite a lot, just trying to find out, mm. reconnect mm -hmm. who's doing what. And there's loads of, there were loads of things happening. It was much more a pop-up culture. And yeah. if you weren't in the circle, you didn't 
uh, know so much about it. And so that's what led me to launch Black Girl Convention. Mm. Um, and it's around that time I also did my TED talk, uh, No You Cannot Touch yeah. My Hair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, as part of the TED talk, there was a, a big survey that I did, um, which was asking, you know, uh, people, the contributors, you know, what needs to change for people that experience their hair being touched. And um, one of the things that people talked about was having more black spaces. Yeah. So for me, I launched Black Girl Convention, the first company, off the back of that whole time, refinding myself in a city, wanting to find connections with other black professional women as well, yeah. and also recognizing that there was a need to create space. Yeah, awesome. I mean, quite interesting times. And the fact that actually, I mean, dare, I mean, would, I, would it be fair to say a kind of pioneer in some of that movement in Bristol in terms of you creating your organization? I don't know if pioneer is like the word I would use. <laughs> what word would you use? I think the word I would just use would just be, um, I say just more like maybe like innovative yeah. in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, there, there's always been people before us fighting sure. the fight mm-hmm. and there's always people to come after. And I think at, the, at that time, there w- I, did, I didn't see what I created, hence yeah. why I did it. So I remember being in the city, having been away for a long time, I didn't have this huge network of black professionals that I felt like I craved, mm-hmm. especially having come from such a, from, from a London environment diverse, where it's yeah. much mm-hmm. more diverse and things were much more visible. And I really craved and wanted and needed that. And I think at that point in my career, having been sort of in a professional space, you know, I'd gone, I'd gone through an employment tribunal when I left Bristol, which was uh, centered around racism, institutional racism, and um, it was a really horrific time. So going back home was a big step for me to kind of go back from a city that essentially I was, felt like I was forced to leave. Um, so I wanted that security in a network and I couldn't visibly see it. So Black Girl Convention, I would say, was pioneering at that time in Bristol because we didn't have a, an event just for women of that scale. But there's definitely lots of other initiatives that looked different, yeah. offering different services. Yeah. So shout out to all the people that, <laughs> that do all that, 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 kind, of all that kind of work. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. but I think Black Girl Convention and, you know, it's, it, I think it's did the test of time. I think um, it was a really unique time, I would say you know, with the No You Can't Touch My Hair campaign, people weren't talking about race in the way yeah. they talk about race now, um, or race and racism in the way we talk about it now. People, I remember I wanted to call it actually Black Feminist Project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember someone saying, you can't call it that, it sounds really aggressive. So I originally named the company Ajiji Purple, and Ajiji is black in my tribal language. Purple was a color of feminism. Yeah. So even I was too afraid to call the project Black Feminist yeah. because of what people might say if you, we, we use that word in a company in the Southwest. But out of a Gigi Purple, Black Girl Convention still came yeah. anyway. And actually, Black Girl, Girl, Girl Convention is pretty impactful still, isn't it, though? Absolutely. Say, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and looking back now, it's like, that was ridiculous. But I think it's all about, it's about kind of thinking about the context of the time that yeah. we come from mm-hmm. and the time that we were in. And as I said, you know, just by doing that, that TED Talk and that campaign, yeah. hair was a really easy way yeah. in mm-hmm. to talk about racism, microaggressions, unconscious bias, and all the different strands of racism yeah. um, that we see and hear today, which is quite commonplace. Yeah. But at that time, it wasn't a conversation to the scale that it is now. But your TED Talk was pretty phenomenal. And if anybody hasn't seen it yet, they must Google Mina Fombo's talk because it's absolutely fantastic. So tell us a little bit more around that process for you, because it did actually most probably kind of catapult you into that wider arena. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think for me, um, I'd seen TED Talks from like the noughties, you know, loved watching them. There was a time when I was like, every day, like what's a new Mm -hmm. TED Talk, what's a new Mm -hmm. TED Talk? Really inspiring. So it was on my bucket list of things to do, but I I didn't know what I was gonna talk about. And as I kind of explained around all the things that culminated at that point, I think for me, the TED Talk definitely 
like you said, to shine a spotlight on the things that I was kind of advocating for on more of a wider scale. And in, in fact, people that might have known me just through playing sport or socialising may not have known the passions that I had without having seen that talk. But I think because it's been part of my lived experience from childhood to always be the person flying the flag against racism, it was almost like everybody else was just catching up to what I'd always been trying to fight or advocate for mm -hmm. within my day-to-day -day life or within my day-to-day -day workplace. I think what I'd also add to that is when I did that TED talk, I'd just come off the back of two and a half years of American football. Um, I played rugby for 11 years before, moved back to Bristol, played American football for the Birmingham Lions, and the dream was to play for a Team GB. It's in my mid-30s, I did all the training, all the camps, like it was an ama amazing, as close as professional athlete as you could get for that sport, amazing experience. But I still found even within that wider sort of uh, Team GB network at that time, sexism and racism was still prevalent. And again, people weren't having those conversations then. So it was much more around the microaggressions. But I can remember thinking, this is what I do for fun. Do you know what I mean? I spend all day in my job having to fight racism and champion an advocate. I've been doing this my whole career. This is my fun space. Yeah. And I'm still having to like bite my tongue because my coach is sexist. Yeah. And I want to get picked for the team. Do you know what I mean? In, hard, in that, it, that, it was hard in that wider sort of uh, GB space. I didn't have that with my, my team, the Lions, but in the wider team. And it was really frustrating because I was like, you know, I want to be in this space, but I also don't want to be. So when uh, the final squad got picked to go and play the World Championships mm -hmm. in Canada, I didn't make the final team. I won the reserves and that was absolutely fine. But I was at a point in my life where you know that when one door closes, another one opens. Yeah. So that door closed. And then that week I pitched my TED Talk and went off to go and do my TED Talk. Because I also realised as well that for me, I guess, even when I'm off trying to have fun, I'm still facing racism and sexism or the intersection of that. And I felt like I'm 35, I played contact sport for this many years, all my body is still intact. So maybe it's time to kind of press pause on that and go and campaign to, you know, make sure that we have spaces that we can enter as black mm -hmm. women yeah. and not have to face that. Yeah. So the talk did catapult and it was a great time, but also a sad time because I had to give up sport yeah to fight for, fight for that. Yeah, no, I can understand that. But it feels like that, that philosophy, and I, I'm a firm believer of as one door shuts, another one opens as well. So tell me more about that mindset that you had at that time, because I think it's quite important to have that positive outlook, I would say. I think for me, again, like I'd always envisioned working for myself, mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur or a founder or having, you know, have, being in charge of my own time, my own yeah. life which we know as founders and entrepreneurs it's very you, don't get a lot of you sort of do <laughs> but you sort of don't you get all the perks but you also you know but aside it's, it's amazing mm -hmm. but I'd always had that in there anyway and I think you know it kind of just took me towards the type of business I, I wanted to run mm -hmm. I think I also was someone who um had learned from just a young age that nothing is given to you mm -hmm. you don't you know nothing is owed to you nothing is given to you on a plate um I'm the youngest of seven siblings so I grew up fighting, do you know what I mean? Physically, but also fighting to be seen or heard or to get something. So it was in my sort of DNA to kind of like, you know, go and go out and fight for something that I wanted. So when I remember working in, in one role, I asked for a pay rise and um, my manager was like, well, you don't get a pay rise just, just for being good at your job. And I was a bit like, okay, right. So the reality is in this job, I'm never gonna make the kind of salary that I want, okay. And then no matter how good I am, I'm not going to make any more money. I was like, okay, fine. Let me go and invest in myself. So from that, that day, I invested in building my company. Do I mean? The TED Talk was great. Um, and then just building, building my personal brand. So 
I think for me, it's the motivation and sort of the mindset is very much around, you know, no one's going to do for me. Yeah. I'm going to have to do for myself, which is a blessing and a strength, but also a curse because you do need teams. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you do, you do need, need to be able to re yeah. rely on people and you do need to be able to sort of ask, you know, mm -hmm. as sometimes it, it doesn't always need to be you. Yeah. But that initial you know, starting the ignition has to yeah. come from within, I think. Okay. It has to come from, from, from you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that completely. So tell me a little bit more then around what have you learned about yourself around the founder business, you know, setting up and, and just moving, I suppose, from professional sports like you did into the entrepreneurial space. Let's not get it twisted. It was definitely not professional. <laughs> I was never paid well, to play sport. All right. But it, the commitment level. Well, GB kind of team, the commitment level yeah, is the professional, commitment right? level, mm -hmm. Yeah, the commitment level is that where, yeah, you're, you're, you're very committed yeah. in terms of your time. I think when you're starting out, if you're alone, nothing happens without you, which is, again, a blessing and also, you know, a curse or a mm -hmm. challenge. And I've definitely learned over the years, it's better to do things with people than to do it alone. There's that saying, I don't know who said it, and forgive me, but if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. Yeah. I don't know who said it, but it rings completely true in every sense, you know? I think from the first company I set up to sort of the third, or the second and third, just realized I didn't wanna do, it, didn't wanna do that again by myself. Yeah. Um, you can bring people along for the ride, you can put in people to help, but if people aren't as invested 100% in the vision and the idea as you are, yeah. then it doesn't, it doesn't work because you're kind of behind the scenes doing everything. Absolutely. So yeah, I've definitely learned for me just not to do it alone yeah. um, moving forward. I think I've learned that anything is possible. This is a really awful person to quote. I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna quote them. But there's a very famous ex-president who has a documentary that I watched and I watched that documentary about this person's life and realized that they didn't spend any of their own money and they just did things by asking. And I thought, oh my God, this is, is that, how, is that how people do it? And that completely changed my mindset around, oh, I need to save this much money or I don't want to get a loan to so let me do this to, do you know what? With integrity, of course, but there's actually people will fund stuff. People will ask for things. And my mindset that I have now where you understand more about VCs and like um, uh, angel investors and, you know, people that will start, you know, crowdfunders or startups. Like, it sounds really silly, but my mindset back then was very much, I have to do everything by myself. So I think I've definitely, I've learned how to be a better business, you know, person through the journey of, of doing and making the mistakes along the way. I definitely learned like networks are everything. And almost I say I learned that, I'd say you, you relearn the lessons again and again and again even when you get them they almost just pop up to remind you so for me like you know when I did youth work relationships in fact even before I did youth work when I studied film back in the day before smartphones and before small cameras you had to have a crew you needed a sound person a camera person do you know what I mean like a runner yourself a minimum of four people maybe to make something so you had to work in teams all through uni you had to work in teams of five or six 20 years ago so the power of relationships and being able to rely on people to help you out was really integral. So as I moved into youth work, it's all about building relationships in order to, you know, get anything done or to have build trust. And I think it's the same as a as a business owner or as a founder. Everything is about relationships and good relationships. People will pick up the phone and they'll tell you a month in advance about a new fund that's coming out. Do you know what I mean? Before it's out. So you can already, and rightly or wrongly, the fact, the, that's the facts of how lots of the games are played. 
is that people have lots of ins. So you build those relationships, you get to sit on boards and hear what's happening behind the scenes. Um, it's always better to be in the room than not, I would say. Yeah. Um, just so you know what's going on, sure. you can always withdraw yourself at a later stage. So it's interesting because actually what's when you're talking, like that sense of doing it all yourself is actually resonating with me. You know, I've, I've had my business now for 20 years and and at, at the beginning I was very similar to that. So what do you think was driving that, that need for you to think that you had to do everything yourself? I just don't think at that time I knew any different. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I'd just always been a self-starter, yep. a go-getter. I'd just always been that person. I think, I'm just trying to think whether it's just being the youngest of seven, quite independent. Yep. So by the time, when you're the youngest, like, like I think you get lots of parents that might have their first child and then they kind of, um, they helicopter sort of parent them. And then by two and three, they're like, yeah, let them be free. So when you're <laughs> the youngest, it's, you know, it's kind of like you get a lot more independence, I think you get to learn more from your siblings. And if you want something, you have to go and get it or go and fight for it. So I think it, it, for me, it always just been there. Mm. I don't know if it's personality type or just experiences, but I think probably being black, probably being female has a lot to do with it yeah. as well. Again, like I said, nothing is handed to you on a plate. You know, I wasn't getting stuff for batting my eyelids at somebody, do you know what I mean? Or like being, I wasn't, you know, being that person. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I had to go out and make things happen. And I, it was just part of who, I, who I've always been, I guess. Yeah. It's a good question. Why am I like this? <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you've got your organization. So you said that you did filmmaking back at, at uni yeah. all them years ago. And so tell me a little bit more about the work that you're doing now, because it feels also that that still is really quite important messaging that you're putting through through the films that you're making. I think for me, like, I've always been passionate about storytelling. I'm a creative, I'm an extrovert. My brain is in 101 places all the time. Hence why I have three companies. Hence why I have three companies. <laughs> and so I would say, um, I think for me, like, the filmmaking, the creative aspect, that's about sort of representation. It's about telling. I'm really in a space where I love sort of a bit of retro, a bit of history. So I'm making a film right now, um, which is a uh, working title is Some Girls Hate Dresses. And I won an award from the Iris Prize uh, last autumn. So that's a film that's looking at black British tomboys. And it's set in the 1990s. It's like a docudrama hybrid. Should be out later this year. And that's really exciting for me because it's about going back in time to a time when we weren't seen or our stories weren't told. There is barely any archive of us. And as language changes um, and as we evolve, I guess our perspectives on identity and, and gender and norms, maybe we become much more free with what we talk about. It's for me, it's just about capturing that moment when if you didn't conform to the stereotype of yeah. being a girl where you liked wearing dresses and skipping and playing with dolls mm -hmm. and whatever those type of girls liked doing, yeah. if you were the type of girl that played football, climbed trees and all your friends were boys. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we were, tom they called us tomboys and Absolutely. It's not that we hated it. It's not that it was bad. It's not that it was good. It's just that's what was real at that time. And I think within that narrative as black people and then as black women and so on. So I really want to just capture that. So I'm, that's kind of where I am in the storytelling. So for me, it's very much around telling stories I want to tell, yeah. that I'm really passionate about. And it's not about getting caught up in any kind of machine. Yeah. Do you draw down on your own experiences from your younger years? 
you know, in terms of like the tomboy as an example, you know, do you kind of draw up and that's what stimulates the the idea of the, the story? Yeah, definitely. I feel like the film I just made before was called The Glorious Ones. And that was very much looking at uh, the glorious moments of queer black women and non-binary people in, in the UK. And um, I was never, I wasn't going to be in it. I was just going to document it. But through the process of making it and interviewing all these amazing contributors, I was just like, oh my God, like, these are my, you're telling my stories. And these are people that have moved from Ghana or South Africa or Ireland or born in England. And all our stories are completely different, but they're also all the same. And just through that process, I was like, you know what? I need to kind of be in it. So I ended up using my story to drive and pull all those stories together. So definitely draw my own experiences within that filmmaking space. But I think also as a company, as Black Wave Productions, when we launched in Bristol, um, that was really around, you know, being in a position of power, you know, I recognise that when I got fired from this job back in the day and I didn't understand the system or tribunals or grievances, I came out of that after an 18 month ordeal, having had to move to London, realising that I just didn't know anything about the system. And from then I was like, I'll get myself into a position of power. I'll never get caught out again. So for me, understanding how things worked, it was like, if you don't, you know, own the company, you know, to get that commission or own the company to leverage the finance you need to make the content at the level that you want. Um, but also you can bring other people along the way. It's definitely a juggle because when you're trying to support other people, you not, can't necessarily invest in yourself. So as a company, we kind of have been on a sort of a three year journey around supporting new talent balanced with developing our own ideas. And that's an ongoing sort of, you know, process that we're in. But um, yeah, definitely draw on my own experiences and, and enjoy telling those. Because it's interesting. I mean, identities, because you talked before about the identity and, the, and I suppose in, in essence, it's labeling, isn't it? I mean, there's so many labels out there and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious around what, what do you think about that and where do you see the work that you've been doing going to continue to support that unlabeling and unroll, you know, kind of kind of getting away from the roles and that kind of conditioning, I suppose. I think for me, like I'm fostered. So I was raised by like a white family in Bristol, white English family. But then I also had contact and I saw my uh, biological Nigerian mum every weekend and so on. And so I've always kind of not quite fitted into any space. I went to a white school in Bristol as one of the only black kids in school or in one school, only black kid. But then I would go to London for the summer holidays and be like with all my Nigerian aunties and so on. Yeah. So for me, like I've always kind of been sort of different so I, I personally didn't have any labels. It's that people give you labels yeah, yeah. that you kind of adopt. So I feel like in terms of, I guess, the work that I do now, in terms of where I've been taking people on the journey, yeah. especially with coaching at its core, is really just around being your authentic self. Yeah. And if you want to have a label because that makes you feel some type of way, then obviously, yeah, own that label, you know. But if you don't want to have that label, then let, let, let it go. Yeah, yeah, let it go. Yeah. And I think the way, the way to do that is for people to kind of, know who they are, kind of figure out, you know, what's authentic to me, what are the thoughts that are in my mind that I want to be there and what are the ones that have been prescribed to me from childhood that I need to kind of erase. I'm really in a space now where it's about um, helping people to kind of rest and just take a step back. I think for me, COVID was an opportunity to just stop after being on the treadmill for like five, six years, building, 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 where I just looked around and was like, am I, am I happy doing all of these things? you know, and that allowed me to slow down. Mm -hmm. And so through doing that and talking to other people, you realize that they want to slow down. So that took me from just focusing on people being their authentic selves to then how do you find time to rest yeah. when you've got a busy life? 
you know, and stereotypically people might rest by going to a spa or whatever, but that might be really expensive. Maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can't go abroad, which is what I always did. And COVID meant we couldn't do that. So definitely I've introduced a lot of craft into the work that I do now. So I, I do a lot of retreats. I've been doing retreats for years. So the most recent retreat, we did a lot of like, we made terrariums, do you know what I mean? Like I've never made a terrarium. I've never made a terrarium. <laughs> but you can go on Google and you can learn how to make Absolutely. one. You can learn about all the plants. It's a pain running around all the gardening shops trying to get all the bits. You embed terrarium making within mm. a coaching skills process, conversation yeah. and a coaching skills process. It's, it's amazing what can come out. And, you know, a 20 minute sort of workshop opportunity um, at a retreat turns into a three hour session yeah. with people going on a really transformational uh, journey. Absolutely. So for me right now, yeah, it's about still being authentic yeah. leadership and your authentic self, yeah. but how, how do we embrace sort of rest, um, enable ourselves to reset as people mm. and find, find joy through trying new things. Mm. And that might be for some people going out in nature, that yeah. might be trying some different craft activities. Obviously sport is always there. I did a retreat recently and I took a frisbee and I was like, we can do some sport. And everyone was like, no, thanks. <laughs> I and I was like, so. <laughs> okay, I need to do a retreat for sports people because no one here <laughs> likes sports and I'm competitive. So, <laughs> But you know that that kind of focusing on something that I'm going to use the word more mindful, but that sense of, I suppose it brings you into the present, doesn't it? It allows you to settle into that moment, whether it's doing, you know, painting or, you know, kind of creating the, the things that you've been talking about. It feels like that pause within that brings that maybe step back as you've described and a bit more rest. I've just got a couple more questions for you, if that's all right. One of them is about the authentic self um, because also you know that I'm banging on my drum around being showing up as your true self and it's really important to me. And But it's a journey, right? It doesn't, it's not going to happen just like that overnight. And so I'm curious around how you've, like you said, you didn't maybe have the labels, maybe other people might put labels on you, but you didn't have the labels. But how have you navigated yourself to remain true to you? Is that all right to ask that question? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> I'm just thinking, um, I think to give context, I can remember from as young as I can remember, I definitely knew that I was a girl before I knew that I was black yeah. in the sense that so many things that I wasn't allowed to do was because I was a girl. So I couldn't have a BMX bike because it was a boy's bike. You know, I wasn't meant to be do like have this red, red trousers because what boys did, you know, and so I really felt that sense of injustice from as young as primary school, like infant school even. So for me, being my authentic self, it wasn't even something that I learned. I just kind of knew what I liked when I was young and recognized it wasn't fair that I was being told to be something else. And I think as you go through life, you just have to, you, you know, like I said, you fight for the things that you want and sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, you know, but it's, I think it, it was always at my core. I definitely think the journey part for me was coming into my queerness in my late 20s, early 30s, which was quite late, but I'd kind of, so sub, so on some, some parts of me were very strong and like I was driven, I was gonna be really like successful and do all these things despite people around me not having those ambitions. I was different in that sense. But at the same time, there was parts of me that I was hiding from myself and it wasn't until I was in a, in a different space and I'd moved to London and left behind everything that I knew almost where you, it was a reset. Yep. Um, and so I think sometimes, which is why, again, with retreats and having a reset, yeah. it's an Very opportunity important. to press pause, check in yeah, and be like, Do you know what, let me just step into this space. Yeah. And it might be scary, but, 
you know, whatever. Because I was going to say, it does take courage, obviously, to kind of, because in a sense, that reset button, you know, you, that's when you go on that real deeper exploration of who you are and what you're all about, you know, what you stand for, all of those things. And, and I don't think it matters what age you are, because I think it can still be, as you said, quite scary. So from what would your advice be? It doesn't matter about whether somebody's, you know, kind of queer or not or whatever. It's just, just, in, just in terms of life. What would you say when people are coming to find out more about who they really want to be because they know that there's something else? Because I don't know about you, I felt there was something more to me. Um, and I think I hid myself away for quite a long time because I was doing a lot of the conforming and the role playing and the, the being the dutiful person that I you know was thought I was supposed to be and and I lost myself in all of that so I'm really kind of struck by your courage actually and your ability to to really you know stand up for what you believe in right right from an early age because I think when I was young I didn't do that as much so I really admire that so I'm curious around how what advice yeah what would you tell somebody to help them get yourself a coach <laughs> good answer <laughs> do you know what I mean like honestly and truthfully like I'd say that you know when I I had that confidence from a young age and most parts of me when I lost my job it was it was beaten out of me and everything yeah. about me was attacked um and I was a mute you'd be a surprise I couldn't talk in meetings you know I had no confidence but through a coaching workshop um and a conversation someone's like when you're ready to let yourself be yourself again you'll be amazed at what you can achieve. You have to leave that experience in the past. And so then through coaching conversations, I, I managed, you know, I found a new lease, which is why when I came to you, I'd already been on, had an experience where coaching had helped me. So I yeah. knew that I could open another door. Um, and I think in terms of at its core around what coaching was, it's about giving yourself space. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To be asked those questions of yourself. Um, that's not necessarily you asking them, but maybe somebody else yeah. where you can just vocalize your thoughts. And sometimes just through talking, things come out. It's that classic thing when someone, uh, when you listen to someone, it's amazing what they will say if they're given that time and space. Um, I guess the other piece of advice I would do is it has to be intentional. So the best way I can describe it is like, if I was trying to introduce a group of people to playing rugby for the first time, but what I had was a basketball court and a basketball shaped ball and six people, you know, it's not going to be a very fruitful introduction to what rugby is like because I'd have to change so much to even make it a bit of an interactive session and we're still not in the right space. The best place to do that is on a rugby field with 15, 20 other people with a rugby ball and the right kit. So if you want to kind of get closer to who you are as a person, you kind of want to maybe put yourself in an, envir in an environment or in an, a space um, or have the right tools mm -hmm. to really give yourself the best opportunity to figure yeah. that out. And I think I say it in sort of an abstract kind of way because I think that's different for everybody. Yeah. So if you're someone who um, is a parent and you've got children and they're just coming to like school age, five, six, seven, whatever, and you're thinking actually, what do I want? What's my purpose? Or then taking yourself away from your children is probably a good place to put you to have that space to think, trying to do that whilst you're you know, doing the school run isn't going to be the best place. Absolutely. So, and vice versa, if you're in a, in a job that you hate, it's probably not good on the to have your lunch break and try and do it in that environment. You want to physically be somewhere else. Yeah. So whether that's mentally, physically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. take yourself into a purposeful environment to have that conversation with yourself yeah. would be a, a starting point, I would say, yeah. in the small amount of time that we've got yeah. <laughs> to give advice. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. So I think what I'm hearing is that, 
the kind of the maybe step back, take a moment to pause to whether that's to reset or even just recollect yourself. And it feels to me that, like you said, you know, if you want to go far, then you need to do it together. And I think working with a coach or a facilitator or somebody that can help you unlock or even provide that safe space for you to explore those things feels really important. I mean, I know the importance and I can hear that you know the importance. But alongside that, I'm also hearing that 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 actually the, if you can't do that, then you can still try to create the right environment. So take yourself out of that day-to-day stuff and to give you that pause to, to reflect. Yeah, and I just add to that and say, you know, get yourself some brilliant friends. Yeah. You only need one or two amazing friends, do you know what I mean? But like, one of the things I'd say is me and my friend years ago, we had this agreement where, you know, we decide how we're gonna talk to each other. So my friend would be like, yep, I need a moan. Six o'clock tonight. I'm like, yeah, and my role in that space is not to be devil's advocate, not to challenge, it's just to listen and let that person have, even if I disagree with anything she's saying, she's having an offload. Do you know what I mean? Or, yep, I need you to give me advice. So set up the relationships, just kind of, yeah, make it really tangible. Yeah. It's like having a, a kitchen cabinet full of different uh, drinking vessels. So Beautiful. shot glasses, mm-hmm. wine glasses, pint glasses, <laughs> mugs, they all have a different purpose yep. and they all hold, yep. uh, hold fluid. So the people in your life should be like your kitchen cabinet. They all have a different purpose. And it might not be your best friend that you go to, it might be your coworker that's the best person to listen. Mm. Um, But set that up for for yourself in your life so you can have space to then have those conversations or think about what's next for me? What's my purpose? How do I find joy? How do I change something? Yeah, I really like the idea of having those different people because you're right, different people can offer you different things and at different times. But I think the key skill there is though is providing or getting yourself with somebody who is gonna listen. Because I think we've got lots of friends who like to give us advice and tell us what to do. But I think it's the listening, isn't it? That is the most important because it feels to me that, as you said, right from the very beginning of our conversation that, you know, you knew deep within you and that's where the answers lay and still most probably do lie. And I'm, again, a firm advocate for that. So out of all what you've done, because you've done so much already, and I know there's so many other places where you want to be heading, but What's the biggest insight that you've had about yourself personally? Not necessarily about the the work that you do, but about you and how you've personally grown. What's the biggest transformation for you? I think for me, the most meaningful transformation was coming into wearing my natural hair. Yeah. Again, around my 30s, around the same time that I came into my queerness as well. But I think my hair was such a big thing for me. It dictated so much of my life and just going natural, taking away weaves and like braids and Again, all those styles are fine, but for yeah. me, it was not being afraid to step outside my door within my whole self. Yeah. Um, that was huge for me. And, you know, yeah, it sparked, like I said, the TED Talk and so many other things yeah. came from that space. So, yeah, going natural and just accepting my body mm-hmm. for, for what it is yeah. um, was, was huge for me, just from self-confidence perspective in so many ways. Yeah, amazing. And I think actually acceptance, again, strikes a chord with me but I think it is so powerful. And I think you can really come into your own personal power and greatness, I believe, when you do that piece of work around acceptance. And it's not easy to do, but it's pretty remarkable, I think, when you get there. Yeah, and I'd add, this sounds really like not useful for anybody who might be younger, but just 
growing older. Yeah. It does help, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because like you get to a point in life where you're like, oh yeah, great. Like yeah. I've made another year around the sun, you know, I'm here. Yeah. And I think you, you care less about everything yeah. that you cared about before uh-huh. and you care more about other things. I think for me, I've always valued the importance of friendships and family just because of my life experience and my family moved away when I was in my early 20s. So my friends became my family. So I've always valued experiences and relationships and a good conversation yeah. over, you know, labels and things. Yeah. But as I've grown through life, you just realize that so much just doesn't matter. And actually what matters is, do can I get up in the morning? Yeah. And can I, you know, go outside and, oh, it's raining, I'll just get wet. Yeah. Rather than my, my hair's a mess. Like, it's like, whatever, I'll just get wet, I'll dry. Yeah. It's what doesn't it is. matter. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. just finding joy in each day and just appreciating catch-ups with with great friends do you know what I mean and just being there for each other those are the things that I really value and care about at this point in life and everything else comes secondary yeah no I can hear that that sounds amazing so apart from your the film that's coming out later this year what else is on the agenda for you this year um the main thing for me on the agenda this year is uh doing lots more retreats so really supporting people to kind of, like I said, rest, yeah. reset, and then come into their authentic selves. Um, so you can follow me on all my socials, at Mina Fombo. Everything is minafombo.com, yeah. and you'll find out loads more information there. But just really helping people to take that time and take them through a guided journey yeah. um, away from their day-to-day life. All right, so you mentioned before about, you know, this kind of sense of drive, and you've, you've it feels to me like you've always been really self-motivated from being a young girl as you described. So tell me more a little bit around how that come about and what kind of led you to that point. I think one of the the key things when you're the youngest in a big family is like, you're always kind of like fighting for space. So whether you're fighting for the best seat on a sofa or the first person (laughs) to get home and get the controls or whatever. So there's definitely a large sense of competitiveness in like a healthy way um, in my house. And we always played games. So like, again, being the youngest, like, People didn't let you win. So if I won, if I beat my dad at chess, which I beat my dad at chess for the first time when I was 23 years old, do you know what I mean? Like all through <laughs> my childhood, I lost, but I played him every yeah. week. Mm-hmm. Um, I played my brothers in games and they, most of the times they'd win and I'd lose. But then if I played my friends, I'd win. So I was, you're learning from a young age to kind of accept you're not winning and yeah. keep trying, keep trying. And I think as I took that through the journey of life, just through playing uh, team sports, you know, you go to practice, you go play a game, if you lose that game, you don't just stop playing, you go back to practice and then you go again. And if you win, you don't stop practicing, you have to keep Keep practicing. So I think the power of sort of being part of a sports team or playing sport has really had like a big foundation, has has really built a big foundation in me Mm -hmm. to just keep trying, win or lose. So, and I think translating that when I used to lead teams to people that we had it, but we did did really well. Why do we need to debrief it? It's like, Mm -hmm. Just because we did well, it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about what went well. We should definitely celebrate our success, but we can still learn from them to either maintain a standard or to improve, as well as when things don't go so well. And and for me, that that came from playing sport. And I think it's interesting because that sense of, or the concept of winning or losing, you know, for me, there is learning in both of those things, as you've just described. And I think you can learn equally as much from winning as you can from perhaps maybe losing. Um, and I think I think it's interesting, and I, I like the idea of that sense of, again, stepping back actually, and to review and to debrief, and uh, e- even from being younger all the way through. I think it's an it's an important skill I think to adapt and to to invite into your 
everyday life because I think it's quite an important approach to life I, I think I mean I don't know what's your take on that yeah I do I agree I think that like I think you can for me like even when I'm recruiting teams in the past you can tell people that have played sport and people that haven't or team sports people that haven't because you know your motivation for showing up is not always for you yeah. so there's definitely been times when you feel like I can't even bother to, to go to practice it's raining it's cold I'm tired yeah. but you're showing up for other people on days when you can't show up for yourself yeah. and I definitely feel like you know, I had my own challenges with mental health last summer for the like the first time properly. And I was like, okay, I'm just gonna show up for my partner. Yeah. I'm not having a good time, at, you know, within my work, I'm figuring out what I'm trying to do next, but let me show up for her by yeah. cooking. So nice. sometimes mm -hmm. you can find motivation by showing up for others yeah, if that's all you've got in the tank. And I think again, for me, that comes from playing sport. You know, you can't let the team down. Yeah. Not to the point that that affects your mental health, but actually just, carries you through yeah when you just need carrying a bit yeah and it's interesting because you mentioned that before didn't you um around that sense of needing people and, and not doing it on your own and i think that again is quite an important thing to to think about as, as as you just move forward in life in general i think yeah i think there's a really interesting like i think it's like a, a counseling technique or like a therapy technique but when they say like you know who's on your team if yeah. you're a founder mm -hmm. or an entrepreneur who are yeah. you today are you the manager today are yeah. you the player are you this but i'm like yeah, yeah, I get all of that, but I'd rather just have the team. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And work with other people. But sometimes, you know, they, they, those therapies, they, they work. They do. But, um, but yeah, I'd much rather have the people in, in person. <laughs> okay, so Mina, where can people get hold of you if they want to find out more about all the amazing work you do? The best place to find me is on my website, so minafonvo.com or on LinkedIn at minafonvo. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what an amazing conversation that was with Mina Fombo. What I took from that is around self-belief from being a young girl. The fact that you need friends and a good cabinet of great glasses because every friendship brings something different. I love the fact that Mina brought into the conversation around, you know, the sports environment and working together as a team. And even when she went off and most probably because she didn't know at the beginning around when she was setting up her business and becoming the founder of her own organization that, you know, using people and connecting with people and keeping that network really strong is so important. But at the heart of everything, what struck me the most about what Mina's said today is about taking a step back, resting, reflecting, and more than anything else, creating the right environment for yourself. And the work that Mina does is so meaningful. And so please, if you can, reach out to her, find out what she's doing, support her filmmaking activities, because I'm sure more than anything else, you're going to get a lot more back than you ever would imagine if you get to work with Mina or get to understand what Mina is doing. So go for it. And as she said, we don't know who gave this quote, but if you want to go far, do it together.